today called The Treasure Principle. I am rereading a book by uh, Randy Alcorn uh, called The Treasure Principle. The sermon's not necessarily directly uh, based on, on the book, uh, but certainly inspired, uh, inspired me to kind of uh, head in this direction. Uh, the prophet Haggai was talking to a very discouraged nation. And he was one who could give a divine pep session. Seventy years before, the Jewish nation had been dragged into exile because of their sin and their disobedience. God allowed another nation to come down and carry Judah into captivity, destroying Jerusalem and their beloved and very expensive temple. Now, 70 years later, in accordance with uh, the prophecy laid out there by Daniel, they've returned home. But their homecoming is a bittersweet experience. They return to a city that still lies in ruin and a temple that is barely stone upon stone. And now their job is to rebuild and restore what has been destroyed. And so they set to work. They begin rebuilding the city walls, and everything seems to be going pretty well with that. But when they come to rebuilding the temple, there is a, a noticeable discouragement, especially among some of the older uh, generations of these uh, returnees. Uh, there was a, a, a problem. They, they weren't wealthy enough to build a temple equaled to the one that they remember, and they know it. Someone has said, if you have to swallow a frog, don't look at it for very long. <laughs> and if you have to swallow more than one, swallow the bigger one first. <laughs> and as they began to size up this daunting task, they began to weep out loud. And they kind of went down memory lane. And why wouldn't you? I mean, this temple was spectacular. And they began to discuss the temple and how wonderful it was. And Haggai knows he has got to do something to encourage God's people. His Old Testament name means festive. <laughs> he is a, a festive kind of, of prophet. As the people faced the dawning task of rebuilding the temple, they needed a cheerleader, someone who could give them uh, an encouragement from, from God that would cause them to be able to do what they knew they could not do on their own. They got started building the temple in 520 B.C., and they finished it just five years later. I'd say that was a great success. Ezra chapter 5 tells us about the partnership of Haggai and Zechariah and how they both were motivating people uh, to take what they knew God could do and put it into practice. The exact day of this message from him would have been what we call October the 17th. 520 years before the birth of Jesus. And the people had a long tradition of living in booths or tents uh, temporarily to kind of signify and remind them of what it was like when they left Egypt and how for 40 years as they wandered through the wilderness in search of the promised land, they had to live in temporary dwelling, kind of nomads, if you will, taking their home and their, their, their tent that they called a tabernacle of, of worship with them and setting it up. Every time they had to move, they would pack it back up and then they would set it back up when they got to where they were going to stay. And for 40 years, they had lived like that. And so at the end of this festival, they would they would live in tents to remind them of what, of what that was like. I'm going to tell you, if my people had lived in tents for 40 years traveling through the wilderness, I'd probably remember <laughs> what it was like. But this was a great way for them to be reminded of it. 
Here's the bottom line of today's message. God wants from us what we cannot give him, what we cannot do for him without him. God wants from us what we can't do without him. Therefore, we are dependent on him to pull it off. You remember the old Oscar Mayer baloney kid? That adorable kid with the bushy curly hair that was sitting out fishing one day, singing his happy little song that became a catchy tune that everybody, certainly from my generation and before, uh, knows very well. I actually started to look up how to spell Meyer when I typed this out, and I thought, wait a minute, that's part of the song, right? I have the words to that song, and if you know it, I thought maybe you'd like to sing it with me uh, this morning. Ready? My baloney has a first name, it's O-S-C-A-R. My baloney has a second name, it's M-E-Y-E-R. Oh, I love to eat it every day. And if you ask me why, I'll say, because Oscar Mayer has a way with B-O-O-G-N-A. <laughs> Very good. That's awesome. Thank you for not letting me sing it alone. <laughs> My favorite part of that commercial, if you remember, is, uh, is kind of an outtake that they included. As soon as the little kid finishes singing, he looks at the director off camera and says, how was that? <laughs> okay, so imagine with me that you have a five-year-old child who has landed a gig on a commercial to be the new millennium version of the Oscar Mayer baloney kid. <laughs> and he's paid like a couple of hundred thousand dollars for a three-year contract to be the new Oscar Mayer baloney kid. Your birthday rolls around and he buys you a brand new $60,000 minivan, pays cash for it. You'd love that van and you would definitely, I would think, feel uniquely blessed. But a little strange, perhaps, having your five-year-old providing for you, but still a blessing. Now, most of us in here today do not have famous five-year-olds making hundreds of thousands of dollars. So let's imagine something more realistic. Imagine your five-year-old has $10 in her piggy bank. And she breaks it open, and she spends all of it on a surprise birthday gift for you. Your husband leans over and says to you, she bought that with her own money. She insisted on it, and we couldn't talk her out of it. Waterworks, right? Happy tears. Big smile. You give her a kiss and you tell her how much it means to you and how that you'll wear it or you'll use it every day, right? Because we as parents are far more touched by the sacrifice and the heart behind any gift that our kids give us, whether it's a card that they create from construction paper or it's a cheaply made piece of plastic jewelry or it's dandelions picked from the backyard. We know what that's like and we get it and it touches our hearts deeply. Our Heavenly Father is impressed far more with what we do when we are dependent on Him, things that we could not afford without Him, things we could not do to serve Him without Him. Our dependency on Him, our sincere sacrifice means far more to Him than if we give of, out of our abundance with no pain, no sacrifice, no thought felt whatsoever, right? I mean, that's the whole story behind the, the widow's might. Remember, she gave two half-cent pieces, and Jesus said she gave all that she had. This was all that she had to live on, and that implies to me that that was what she needed for tomorrow, but she was going to trust in the Lord for tomorrow, and she was going to sacrifice anyway. And Jesus said that everybody else was giving out of their abundance, but she gave even that which she 
really didn't have. Some things that I, I gleaned from Haggai chapter 2, if you want to follow along there with me. Things that these, these uh, followers of God needed to remember in order to accomplish that which they could not accomplish on their own. Not without God, they couldn't. The first thing is we need to look back. We need to look back. We've seen his glory in the church, right? We've seen God do great things in the past for his kingdom. We've seen things specifically here at Dover. And many of you have told me about things that happened a decade or more ago. And you can remember back when. Back when Dover was used by God to do something spectacular. And you say, man, that was great. I can remember when. And you know that it was great because it wasn't just God's people pulling it off. It was God pulling it off through his people. And that's what made it great. And we can remember it. Haggai chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and ask them, Who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? And how does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing. Haggai knew that there were some people that perhaps in their infant days could remember back 70 years prior. They could remember back to when there was this spectacular temple and he knew that's what's going on and it is crippling them because they know they can't duplicate what once was. They know they don't have the, the wealth of Solomon. They don't have the resources to pull that off. They don't have the leadership of King David. And, and so they know that, they, they, that without this, there is a lack of vision, and it is destined to fail, and they weep loudly. One preacher actually titled his sermon on this passage, Don't Look Back, but I'm encouraging you to look back. Because I think it's good to remember the great things that God has done through his church and through his people in the past because it's, he is still alive and he's still on his throne today, amen? And it stands to reason that if he could do great things in the past, he can do them again. God is still alive. And so whatever great things that we can remember, when we can look back to the temple of yesterday and we remember the God who made it happen, he can make it happen today. The younger people that Haggai was addressing, they were rejoicing. They were very excited about getting started on the work of rebuilding the temple because they had nothing in which to compare their endeavor. But the older priests, the Levites, the family heads, they were actually weeping out loud. They could remember that beloved temple how awesome it was. They no longer had Solomon's wealth or David's leadership. They, they, they wondered how it could ever be wonderful again. That original temple was built at the height of Solomon's glory. It had taken 183,000 laborers seven years to build that temple. It was built using the resources King David had set aside for uh, its construction. But it, it was also financed by taxes imposed by King Solomon during his reign. Solomon also taxed the people of Israel so heavily that this burden served as one of the causes of the split of Israel into two nations after he died. Solomon's temple was constructed using over 663,000 pounds of silver. And somewhere around 567,000 pounds of gold. That's not to mention all the other precious stones and expensive wood 
and other materials that were used in its construction. And as the people returned and they looked at the, the dire straits that Jerusalem was in, and as they looked at the rubble and they looked at the stones just kind of laying on top of stones of what was once that great temple, they were discouraged. It's a lot of money. The Jews who returned from exile weren't nearly as wealthy uh, to invest that kind of money and in the resources into building this effort. And so the temple that they have managed to build is fairly inferior compared to the one of Solomon's day. It was functional, but it was nowhere near as extravagant as that first temple, and they were discouraged and they were sad. Ezra tells us that when some of the Jews stood before what they had built, that they were discouraged Many of the older priests and the Levites and the family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud, it says in Ezra 1.12, when they found the, the foundation of this temple being laid. They were frustrated and they were dis despondent. Many of you can look back. You can look back maybe even decades and you remember what the church was able to accomplish. You can remember seeing the thousands of people flooding arenas to hear Billy Graham preach his, the gospel, resulting in people streaming down every aisle to hear about becoming disciples of Jesus. And, and you wonder how they could, there could ever be another revival in our nation to compare. I can remember you know, Billy Graham and, and hearing him preach, and, and I wonder, people talk about who's going to be the next Billy Graham and, and who's going to be the next revivalist that can turn America around and that can bring everyone, including leaders, to their knees in repentance. And, and, and it's discouraging to think that we don't have that person. Maybe you remember the time when our current building here at Dover Christian Church was being constructed. And you remember the sacrifices that people made to fund it. You remember the hard work of the congregation to build and paint and furnish it. You, you, you remember the unity that resulted in it. And maybe you remember a time when space was an issue because the church was so full and was growing. And you wonder if that could ever happen again. I've heard wonderful stories of how Dover was a leader in youth ministry for the community and how students would head over to our campus after football games for bonfires and fellowship. And we think about those times and what great days those were. And I want you to know that the same God who made those things happen can make them happen again. I reached out to a couple of uh, leaders in our church to ask them about some of the missions trips that we send people on. Did you know that over 80 different people have traveled to Shiloh Christian Children's Ranch in Missouri from Dover Christian Church. That's phenomenal for a church our size. That blows me away. I asked Michelle Timmons uh, approximately how many people did she think from our congregation had gone on the trips uh, to Ethiopia, and she knew that nearly 30 different individuals have gone over time, but when she looked deeper into it, she found 68 airline tickets had been purchased for people from Dover Christian Church to go all the way around the world to Ethiopia requiring shots and packing and planning and preparation and a lot of courage and a lot of parents trust to send teenagers or young adults uh, over there. And God does amazing things. I asked her a few weeks ago, I said, uh, so how many people you got going on your trip? She goes, I don't have anyone yet. And like two weeks later, I asked somebody, and they said, oh, yeah, she has 11 now. <laughs> 11 people signed up to go. That is phenomenal. And I would say to you what Haggai said to these folks who could look back and remember the supernatural great things that God did, in the, did that the best is yet to come. If he can do it then, he can do it again. F.F. F. Bruce writes that Haggai used their 
retrospect to lead them to their prospect. As they were retrospectively remembering the great temple of the past and tempted to be discouraged by the temple, the modest temple that they had produced in the present, they were being reminded God can do great things again. People sometimes say that if we don't learn from history, then we're doomed to repeat its mistakes, and that's true. But that's a more negative view of the benefits. I say if we don't learn from the history, we'll forget what God has done and what God can still do. So we look back. But we look back not just in retrospect, but with, with prospect for what God can do. Secondly, we're told to work hard. Why? Because God is with us. This is what Haggai says in verse 4 of chapter 2. He says, but now be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. God, our Father, is pleased more by our faith in him to do great things through us than he is by anything that we can do on our own that does not require his assistance or his power or his glory. If we say, look at what I did and we can do it on our own, those are just man-sized visions being fulfilled. Sometimes I think we're discouraged because we can't do everything. We don't do anything. Have you ever felt that way? The need is so great. There's this whole world out there that needs to hear the gospel. And, and we think, I can't reach everyone. I'll reach, I'll reach no one. We can't house every homeless person in Indiana. Homelessness will still be a problem. So what does it matter? Well, if you're able to help one single mom keep her children, to know she's going to have a roof over her head and, and her kids' heads, and to know that it's in the love of the name of Christ, it'll matter a whole lot to her. It'll give a whole lot of glory to the Lord, and it'll revive the church. We can't solve the problem of the world's homelessness, but we can solve it for at least one. We ought to do it. Next, be brave. Why? Spirit remains among us. Haggai 2.5 says, This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. All of us who have read the gospel know that making disciples is not an option for us. It's our mission. It's our great commission. We know that we are not to cover our light and put it under a bushel and to hide it, but we're to put it out high where everyone can see, see it and are given hope by the, the Lord. We know that God wants his church to feed the hungry, to shelter the homeless, to clothe the poor, to defend the weak, to be a, fatherless, a father to the fatherless. And that's not changed. God's power has not diminished. His Holy Spirit still equips, and we are still alive and well, and the best is yet to come. Haggai's message for the people from God connects their past with their future and inspired their present. When God has ordered a job to be done, he always does his part. It's interesting uh, to see how God responded to the despair of the people. Addressing Zerubbabel, one of the royal descendants of King David, now a governor of Judea, it says, but now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, 
For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. Did you notice that God repeats himself again and again? Be strong. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people. Be strong and work. Because the Lord our God is with us. That was God's message to Joshua when he stepped into Moses' shoes to lead the people. That was God's, uh, David's message to Solomon when he built the temple. That was Haggai's message to the people to rebuild the temple. And I believe that's God's message to us today. As we step out in faith and we say, here we are, Lord. The rally cry of Haggai to the people was so similar to other times when people were told, be strong and courageous. And that it was always because the Lord, their God, was with them. The Lord our God is with us today. And he has great things that he still wants to do and to accomplish uh, through his church. So finally, expect greater things. The best is yet to come. Haggai chapter 2 verses 6 through 8 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. <laughs> it is God who brings the glory. Amen? We don't bring the glory. Oh, sometimes we put that on ourselves and we think it's up to us to bring the glory. No, it's just up to us to sow the seeds of the gospel. It's just up to us to do the work he's called us to do. If you want to harvest, you've got to lean on the Lord to make it happen. Can you think of anything that, could possibly, that we could possibly do that would seem spectacular to God? <laughs> I mean, he's the one who brings the glory when, when we do our part. Dover may not be able to provide the flashiest events or programs or productions. We may not be able to bring in the best-named, most famous people to share their testimonies. But you know, if we do our part, God will bring his glory. God will provide the spark. God will provide the flash, the brilliance. And God will be the one at the end of the day who gets the credit. Fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal, 2 Corinthians 4, 18. God brings the glory. God also owns all the resources. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? There's nothing that we have that isn't really God. Sometimes we think it's ours, and we, we think we're our own our own little miniature gods, our own providers, our own support. But really, every one of us is dependent totally on God. There's nothing that any of us has that couldn't be taken away in an instant. It really all belongs to God. And I suppose that's why they call it stewardship, because it's, we are stewards of it. Our daughter got her driver's permit yesterday. And one of the things that I had to do was show my driver's license and sign a piece of paper saying I am financially responsible for her. <laughs> and so this morning, as she got into the driver's seat of my masculine Opal Green Honda Civic Hybrid, 
and backed it out of the garage. And I pointed out to her before she started driving what points of the vehicle she needed to be concerned about. The rearview mirror that we don't try to move the house off the foundation with it. The nose on the left front, we don't hit the freezer in the garage. The back right, we don't uh, take off her mom's bumper of her minivan kind of thing. And she did excellent. But she knew the entire time she was driving that she was driving my car. She made a couple of references to its color and that it was my car. At one point, she even said, Dad, most of the guys at Dover drive trucks, don't they? Yes. Yes, they do. Eyes on the road, please. <laughs> she was a steward of the car that I owned. <laughs> she didn't think she owned it. Now, eventually, if she continues to do well and is granted a driver's license and with our permission uh, and boundaries we set, she may drive that car on her own somewhere. And when she parks it, she may say to someone, hey, be careful, you don't bump my car. But when she says, don't bump my car, what she really means is don't bump my dad's car that he's letting me drive, <laughs> right? And everything we have, everything we have belongs to the Lord. And whether we save it or we spend it or we share it, we do so in the mindset that it's not mine to begin with. It belongs to the Lord. And just because we may not have what we wish we had, or we may not be able to do what we would do if someday we had such and such, the, the, real, and the real question is what are we doing with what we have right now? People say, you know, if I were to win the lottery, or if I were to inherit a million dollars, I would do this, that, or the other. And the fact of the matter is, I've not inherited a million dollars. But what am I doing with what I do have right now for the kingdom? Because every one of us can do something. I can't preach like Andy Stanley. <laughs> Doesn't mean I shouldn't preach. You may not be able to sing like Lauren Daigle but it doesn't mean you shouldn't sing. And just because you may not have the kind of wealth that would enable you to fund a multi-million dollar family life center somewhere, it doesn't mean you can't do something with what you do have for the Lord. Maybe you can't go to Ethiopia on a short-term missions trip in a few weeks, but maybe you could help fund the trip for someone who is wanting to go and able to go. What are you doing with what you do have, not what would you do if you had what you wish you had. Haggai knew that the people were discouraged and they couldn't seem to, to get started and, and, and to be able to be proud of what God was accomplishing through them. And so he had to remind them that, hey, it's not us anyway that creates things to be flashy. Let God bring the glory. Let God bring the resources. Let God make it happen. They couldn't match the temple uh, of Zerubbabel, but it can be the temple that God builds. Our God is the one who brings the glory. God grants his peace, finally. Those are the three things that we're told that he brings. His glory, his resources, and his peace. The word for peace is the word shalom. It's a multicolored word, so to speak. But most likely its meaning here is one of righteousness and wholeness in the context. It's not about the bricks and mortar. It's not about the furnishings. It's not about the fanciness. It's about the heart of God's people. 
for worshiping him. This is a place of worship. This is a worship center. And I am so glad that we don't have sacred cows, as it were. We have soft, cushioned seats, but, and they're nice, and I'm so glad that we have them, but they're not ordained in gold, and, you know, we're not trying to, you know, oh, please don't, you know, I hope nobody sits on this chair so it'll stay looking new. <laughs> no, I hope it gets worn out by the amount of people coming in and using it, right? I hope the carpet gets worn out by the foot traffic. I hope that there are, there are occasional spills. <laughs> so much better than a place that looks unused by worshipers worshiping the Lord. It's been said that vision almost always precedes resources. Vision almost always precedes resources resources and I think that's because God wants us to have faith in him to do the hard work and and to just go for it the problem is that people tend to want to wait on the resources because they they start trying to follow God's call to accomplish a vision that he has given them when they have the resources God's called me to do such and such and someday when I have what it takes to do it with no pain, no effort, no faith, then I'm going to jump. Then I'm going to go and we wait and we wait and we wait and we wait and if we're not careful, one day at the end of our lives with, we will look back and our accomplishments will only fulfill man-sized visions, not God-sized ones. I'll soon be 51 years old. I still have a lot, I hope. And to accomplish if the Lord tarries and if I get to remain through life expectancy or beyond. But time is ticking away. I could create a top ten list of the greatest things that I've been privileged to be a part of where God did more through me than I could have ever done on my own. Where I knew they were God moments. Where you know they were God things that God did. And I can definitely see where it's, it's easy to give him the credit because we know I'm not that good. And you could do that, too. No matter how old or young you are, you could look back over your life and you could list the top ten biggest God moments in your life where God did immeasurably more than all you could ever think or imagine. What were those, those things? What did those things look like? And we need to perhaps do that so that we don't forget that the same God who made those top ten things happen is still alive and he's still on his throne today. And his spirit is still on us and he is still present. My main reason for saying that though is to point out that there's a top ten list of great things that have yet to be accomplished for which I should be able to look back on between today and my last day on earth. What will those ten things be? Are you done? Are we as a church resting on our laurels? Are we saying, boy, I remember when. That was great. Or are we looking to the future to say, man, those top ten things that God has done, spectacular. But God's got a top ten list yet to write in my life, in my church, in my community. And I'm glad I get to be a part of it, get to be uh, in on it, whatever that is. What will your top ten future things be between today and your last day? Don't rest on your laurels. Rely on God's present power and knowledge that he has not finished using you yet for his kingdom. Or he would have no reason for have kept you on earth right now. You'd be gone. 
Earth is just temporary. We are strangers. We're aliens. We're just passing through. Life is like a vapor, a mist that appears for a little while and then is gone. And the older we get, the more we realize the reality of that. And the only reason we're here is to be fruitful for the Lord. And if you're still here and you still have breath in your lungs, there's a reason for that. What is God wanting to accomplish through you? What will your legacy be? What work of the Lord will continue after your earthly years? We should all pray about that and and be reminded that when we put our faith in the Lord's hands, he puts his peace in our hearts. I want to close with uh, an analogy that I discovered in preparation for this uh, today that I think a lot of you will resonate because I know. It's one of the things my wife's always said about Dover. They are hardworking people. And, and we are, we're not afraid of work. And this one's about a farmer. An old farmer was about to die, and he called his two sons to his bedside. And he said, boys, my farm and the fields are yours. You each have equal shares. I leave you a little ready money, but the bulk of my wealth is hidden somewhere in the ground of the farm. I'm not sure anymore quite where it is, but it's not more than 18 inches below the surface. In time, of course, the old man died, and the sons inherited the farm. And not long afterwards, boy, they set to work digging up every inch of ground. But they failed to find any treasure. But since they had gone to all that trouble of turning the soil, they thought, well, might as well sow a crop, which they did. And it reaped a pretty good harvest. <laughs> but the next year, boy, boy, they couldn't wait to get out there and, and repeat the same thing. And they did, man. They got to, they got to work as soon as they had the opportunity, and they dug for that treasure again. They dug and they dug, but with no better results. And as their fields were turned over more thoroughly than any others in the neighborhood, they, they reaped better harvest than anyone else. <laughs> and year after year, their search continued, and year after year, they gained a good crop. <laughs> it was only when they had grown older that they realized what their father had done. <laughs> they were <laughs> living the treasure. They were, they had found the treasure. And it was in their hard work that they were gaining a harvest every year. You reap what you sow. The fields are ripe for harvest. We are so blessed. When I tell people about Dover and I try to paint the picture of where we, the setting here and so forth, and I tell them about Western Boone being within view of our building, I am like, we are so blessed. What, five high schools came together to make the one consolidated high school, and our church gets to be the one that they built the building right across the street from us. And, and a mission field is right there. An opportunity to serve our community, to build a bridge, to reach out to, to these families that, that call themselves Weibo and, and, and beyond, certainly Lebanon and, and even Plainfield. <laughs> But right here, within view, a lot of, lot of churches, a lot of Christian churches in the Western Boone School District. But we are so blessed, it's just right here across the road. And I just think, what are we doing? What are we doing to reach one more, to reach one more for Christ? It was in my notes, but somehow I, I, I skipped over it. But there's, a, there's an old story about a, an older man that was walking along a beach after the high tide had gone back out. And the beach was was littered with living starfish baking in the sun, facing a certain death. And he was careful not to step on any of them. He knew they were living creatures, and he didn't want to unnecessarily squish any of them. And he thought about 
reaching down and throwing some of them out into the water. And he realized as he looked at all these starfish, you can't save them all. Why bother? What's the purpose? What does it matter? And he came across a little boy. The little boy was throwing as many of the starfish out into the water as he possibly could. And the old man thought he'd speak a little wisdom to the boy. He said, what are you doing? And he says, I'm saving these starfish. I'm throwing them back out into the water where they can live. And he goes, it, it, you can't save them all. What does it matter? And the little boy who had just picked up one more starfish, looked at the man, looked at the starfish, looked back at the man. He goes, what matters to this one? And threw it out into the water. <laughs> you can't win all of Boone County to Christ. You can't win all of Indiana to Christ. You can't win all the United States to Christ. You cannot win everyone from here to Ethiopia and back to the Lord. But you can win someone to Christ. You can win someone to Christ. You can keep them from facing a Christless eternity because they have heard the gospel. You can make a difference. You can't house all of the homeless, but you can house someone. You can't feed all the hungry, but you can feed someone. You can't, you can't clothe all of the naked, but you can clothe someone. You can't go to every nation in every country physically and, and preach the gospel to everyone. But maybe you can see one student who can. What are you doing with what you have now? What would your top ten greatest God moments be between January the 12th 2020 and your last day on earth pray with me father god i thank you for your amazing love i thank you god that you have called us to do greater things than what we can even begin to imagine and lord we put our faith and our trust in you god there is a treasure you have promised it to us and it's not hidden but you do call us to do the work and god as we do that work God, I pray that you'd reap an incredible harvest for your kingdom and that you would take all the credit, all the praise for it. And God, that it would be your glory that would fill this place. Your Holy Spirit, God, who would empower and equip us. And your presence, Lord, that would make this church, God, be the greatest it could possibly be. Not because of any of us, but because of you in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.